Middle East, the podcast from Embrace the Middle East. Embrace is a Christian development charity working with Christian partners in Egypt, Lebanon, Syria, Iraq, Israel and Palestine, improving the lives of excluded and marginalised communities. I'm Tim Livesey, CEO of Embrace, and in this series, I'm speaking to people from all walks of life with a variety of perspectives on the Middle East. With their help, I want to paint a picture of what the Middle East really looks and feels like when you get behind the news headlines. Today, I'm delighted to be speaking to Elizabeth Harris-Orchenko. Liz is a former director of the UK Council of Christians and Jews, as well as Director of Public Affairs for the Board of Deputies of British Jews. And she now works alongside other interests for the Abraham Initiatives, which promotes a shared society in Israel as between Jews and Arab Palestinians. Now, Liz, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'd like to let you introduce yourself, uh, if I may. So could you just tell us a little bit about your life before you took up those prestigious posts. Hi, thank you and welcome to all your listeners. It's a real honour to be here today. Um, I went to live in Israel after my first degree at age 21 in 1987. So I actually arrived in Israel um, a short time before the first intifada. And I also arrived in Israel at a turning point in terms of Jewish communities coming into Israel because it was the time after the Berlin Wall had fallen and, and the former Soviet Union had been dismantled and there were many Jewish people coming in from the former Soviet Union. Um, it was also the time when there was a civil war in Ethiopia and many Ethiopian Jews were arriving as well. So it really felt like the gathering of the exiles. I did a second degree at the Hebrew University in Jewish history um, and um, we can unpack this later, but that was also my first encounter with Palestinian citizens of Israel at the university, which is an important formative moment for me. Um, I then um, worked in Israel Radio for a number of years, particularly um, after the Gulf War, and ended up with a master's in Jewish history, working also in Jewish education. And that was during the uh, Oslo years. And um, I was very fortunate to have an opportunity as an educator to participate in people-to-people -people encounters with Palestinians um, during part of the Oslo Accords, which again was a very important turning point in my life. And after that, I became a director at the New Israel Fund, which is the largest civil society umbrella for civil society organisations in Israel and also some that um, work across border as well into Palestine. I returned to the UK in 2006 and I've been here since. So I, during my time in Israel, I experienced two Lebanon wars, two intifadas, a peace process, um, leaving uh, settlements around Gaza, uh, amongst other events, which spans quite a lot of Israeli modern history. It's never a dull, it's never dull in the Middle East, but I mean, I have to say, that particular period in that particular part of the Middle East is 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 especially well interesting to me, and I'm sure will be to our to our audience. And it's interesting, Liz, that you 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 began by noting that your time in Israel was was around the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall, and given everything that's happening in Ukraine, I think it's a timely reminder that partly the nature of Israel that that that, that particular region and many other regions are connected to Israel and its population. So maybe just say a little bit more about that. What was it like to be part of this very multicultural 
um, if not always multi-ethnic society. It was really fascinating because, you know, as a Jewish woman growing up in northwest London, um, I, I, I admit I had quite a myopic vision of how the Jewish world um, was comprised, let alone the Arab communities in Israel. And I ended up doing my absorption process in Haifa, which is not only a mixed city between Arabs and Jews, um, it's one of the um, seven mixed cities in Israel where there's a high population of an Arab community, but it was also an area where many Jews from the former Soviet Union arrived and also from Ethiopia. So I was actually the only English speaker in the absorption center where I spent my first three months in Israel. And um, I learned a lot about um, Ethiopian food and dancing um, <laughs> and, and also a lot about um, Jews coming from the former Soviet Union who obviously hadn't had any Jewish identity there under communism. So very, very different communities and very difficult to integrate all these different communities in such a short period of time together. So I felt very privileged coming from the UK. Liz, did you speak Hebrew before you went and how important? important is Hebrew as, in effect, you know, a, an instrument of assimilation and uh, social cohesion in Israel? So I spoke very little. It isn't taught very well in, in Jewish schools in the UK, unfortunately, that, which is dissimilar to America. Um, and that's why many Jews that come to live in Israel go to um, what we call an ulpan, which is um, a Hebrew learning school for an intensive period when they first arrive so that they can integrate a little bit. Now, there are many people who live almost like expats in, in Israel, particularly in Jerusalem, who never learn Hebrew, but I very much felt that I wanted to be integrated into Israeli society, which is why I decided to do my absorption in Haifa, where there aren't many English speakers. Um, but also, I had opportunities, for example, when I worked in Israel Radio for three years during the Gulf War, where I was... Um, I was listening to news in Hebrew and the, the, it was a daily program in Hebrew, so it was kind of sink or swim. I would say that it's absolutely critical language. And that's why, you know, I, I'm so passionate about some of the work at the Abraham Initiative, because obviously, if you're an Arab citizen of Israel, it's not your first language, it's your second language. And very often there aren't the facilities, even in terms of signage in a university for an Arab student to feel at home in their own country. So language is absolutely critical and, and one of the programmes that we actually run in the Abraham Initiative is something like, it's a bit like Teach First, I guess. We call it shared learning, where we have the best Israeli teachers teaching in Arab-speaking schools and the best Arabic-speaking teachers teaching in Israeli schools around Israel. We've just actually had a huge investment now from the, from the Israeli government as well to roll this out on nationally in almost every kind of school across across Israel um, in order that um, both communities are empowered not only economically but also socially to understand one another a little bit better. I really do believe that language is a cultural bridge. That's something very important to me. We're going to come back to that, Liz, if, if we may, in a moment. Before we do, can I just ask you something that, that may or may not be a new idea for, for our listeners? I'm not sure whether when you went to Israel in 1987, you would consider yourself to be making Aliyah, but perhaps you could tell us whether that's what that is what you were doing. And could you tell us what is Aliyah? Well, that's, that's so interesting because obviously coming from the Jewish community, that's such common terminology. So it's really lovely to have the opportunity to explain it. 
Yes, so under Israeli law, there is a law called the right of return, which was part of the founding of the establishment of the State of Israel that that anyone of Jewish heritage would would have a Jewish home, which obviously was particularly important um, after the Holocaust. And I was a very enthusiastic um, young Zionist growing up in northwest London, although I didn't really understand the complexity of Israel or what it would be like living there. But like many other young people in my community, I was part of a youth movement. There are many youth movements um, in the Jewish community in the UK and around the world. And they actually existed even in Poland and in the Polish settlement in Russia and prior to the state of Israel that were youth movements to prepare you for life in Israel and to infuse you um, to live in Israel. The word aliyah, which is a Hebrew word, means to go up. In other words, spiritually, you're going to something more elevated than the life that, that you already have. And I think that that is really um, emblematic of the whole idea of um, Yushalayim Shalemala and Yushalayim Shalemata, like the day-to-day -day life in Israel and the more spiritual yearning. And I think that's something that's often missed outside of the Jewish community, that for Jewish people, it's not just a political reality and a political issue, the state of Israel. It is somewhere that we spiritually have been praying towards for 2000 years and something that is in our daily prayers three times a day that we will return to Zion. There are also many laws within the canon of Jewish law that pertain only to the land of Israel, such as the Jubilee year when you're meant to leave the land fallow and return it to God, for example. So. So um, the concept of Aliyah is a spiritual as well as a physical concept. So I was a very ideological young woman and that was something that I did. I, you don't become an Israeli citizen immediately. There's kind of a grace period. Um, you have a year to sort of make up your mind. I don't know if the law's changed since then. And uh, yeah, then I became an Israeli citizen. So you, you know, just to be clear on that, you're, you have dual nationality, dual Israeli and British nationality. Is that right? I do have British and Israeli nationality, and depending where I'm at any given time, I either feel more of this or more of that, or more <laughs> alienated from this or more alienated from that. So sometimes I'll find myself being rather direct about things, which is a more Israeli way or Middle Eastern way of dealing with issues. And uh, I found it, you know, quite interesting when I came back to the UK how people engage in, in professional and work situations, which is obviously quite different to how people behave in Israel. So that's when I sort of feel more Israeli or more British. When I'm in Israel, everybody thinks I'm 100% British. And sometimes when I first came back to the UK, people used to say, oh, that's a, a very Israeli way of think, doing things live. So I'm very aware of you know, having both of those strands in my personality. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, Liz, you said you said uh, that you were an enthusiast, you said you were ideological and you also said that you were an enthusiastic young Zionist. And I wonder if you could just explain what 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 does that mean to you to be a Zionist? Has your Zionism changed over over um, over your lifetime? And do you think um, that a young person more or less the age that you were when you describe yourself as, as a young enthusiastic Zionist. Are they Zionist in the same way today as, as you were then or have things changed? So I think, you know, it's a very broad term and it's often misused or even abused in certain situations. I think for me, Zionism is sort of the ism bit is sort of a modern movement and Zion is more the spiritual element. 
So um, from my point of view, um, even if there hadn't been a Second World War and a Holocaust, I think I always feel like I would have wanted for the Jewish people to have a homeland of their own, just as I would want for the Palestinian people to have a homeland of their own. And I still hope for that. Um, I feel that um, it's a very important part of Jewish identity, whether people decide to go and live in Israel or not. For me, Zionism is about creating a just society um, based on the best of Jewish values, a society for all, a democracy, um, all the things that were part of the Declaration of Independence in 1948. Does Israel live up to that today? Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. I aspire towards it, which is why um, it's so important to me to be part of an organization that promote, promotes the rights of all citizens of Israel, because that is that is my vision. I would say that Zionism has become equated in many people's minds with settlements. But obviously, if you look at the creation of the state of Israel, it, it was about acquiring land, although obviously the United Nations made it a sovereign state. Is my Zionism um, taking land from people in places where that sovereign state was not established? For me, that, that's not Zionism. It may be in other people's minds, but for me, that, that's not what it's about. I think it is important to qualify that different people have different visions of, of what that means. It means. For me, it means a homeland for the Jewish people alongside a homeland for another people. For others, it, it may not mean that. So my own journey probably did change. Um, I grew up in a religious Zionist movement that I still feel was an important way for me to learn about Israel and to create community. But that particular part of the Jewish community also believes in, in expanding settlements, which is not something I believe in. I think that my Zionism changed during my time in Israel, partly because I did live through the first and second intifada. I got to know Palestinians. I got to understand that we are all human beings and we all have needs and we need to share this land. Um, and I think uh, my Zionism is, is about justice. And that is why I started to work for civil and human rights organizations. I think it's very easy to just disagree with things. It's much more difficult to constructively engage with issues within Israeli society. And I'm not just talking about between Arabs and Jews. I'm talking about between all citizens of Israel. Um, and for me, that is Zionism, building building this uh, socialist utopia, I guess. It's so interesting. I mean, I you know, we could spend the whole of this uh, uh, broadcast for sure on Zionism. And not least because, I mean, I'm fascinated that, you know, Theodore Herzl, the founder of Zionism, if we can call him that, was, was, as I understand it, very much a secular Jew. Obviously, you have very religious Jews who, who are Zionists. And so the, as a term, as you as you say, it, in a sense, it has built within it the possibility of an extraordinary pluralism, which is both, I think, a great strength and, and a fascination, but also potentially, as you say, means that it can be so easily misunderstood and it, and it can mean very different things to different people. Liz, you... you I mean, as you've alluded to there, you're quite passionate about social justice. And that's been a very, that's really been, you know, the story of your life. Tell us a little bit about how you pursued that kind of thirst and hunger for, for, for social justice in uh, in your time in Israel between 87 and 2006. And and then when, when we've talked a little bit about that, we might then sort of talk about the Oslo process, which of course was sort of going on at that time. But if you want to allude to that, you know, do. So I think with me, uh, particularly, you know, going to live in Israel when I was 21, quite 
you know, green about all the issues. It was more about curiosity than, than about politics initially. So um, I did do my master's at the Hebrew University. And um, during that time, I was offered a stipend if I would do a few hours of volunteer work every week. And uh, I thought, well, that's a good idea. And I asked what projects were available. And there was one project that no one had filled yet. And that was to teach Arab students English in the university to assist them with um, supplementary English lessons. And I had no idea that there wasn't a huge amount of social interaction between Arab, Jewish, Arab and Jewish students on Israeli campuses, and especially in the 80s. And so I was just curious to find out about another community. And I think that was an initial very important human contact that I had that probably influenced a lot of things later in my career in Israel, because I entered the homes of, of Arab citizens of Israel. I hadn't really thought about what their lives were like or, you know, or what their rights to the land were. And that wasn't something that, that had really been a focus when I was growing up in my own little bubble. And I think that meant that during the Oslo years, I was potentially more open to encounters with Palestinians over the Green Line as well, and curious about that as well. I think the encounter during the Oslo years with, with Palestinians was extremely important because it was coming straight on the heels of the first intifada. You know, it all happened very, very swiftly. And the first intifada was very violent and bloody and I was as fearful as anybody else I did actually experience personally some of that violence unfortunately and so it was a big um, leap of faith for any Israeli and probably Israelis who had been born there and served in the army more than for me I was almost coming as an outsider in some sense to go into areas where there was no longer an Israeli military presence and to put your faith in human beings that you could sit down and get to know one another and even work together. And I think when Oslo started falling apart and the, the violence started again on both sides, um, it meant that I was more open to the idea of, of enabling that encounter within Israel again between um, Palestinian, Jewish um, and Arab citizens, um, Muslims, Druze, Christians together working together than, than I might have been if I hadn't gone through the whole Oslo process. I realised that what was possible was to change things internally, even where political solution hadn't been found between Palestinians and in the West Bank and Gaza and, and Israel proper. Liz, so this is a very difficult question, so forgive me, but um, you felt that then. Do you still feel that now, that it's possible? To, to create shared society in Israel? by all means answer it in that in that regard but then but then also perhaps go on to say whether you think it's possible uh, that something similar could happen uh, on the other side of the green line in other words um, in, in, in a Palestinian state. Well this is you know the most intractable conflict of you know since biblical times so you're not talking about something simple here <laughs> what I what I do know is that I see huge progress through my work at the Abraham Initiative, which is a very pragmatic organization about creating programs on the ground, as well as working with Israeli government institutions to change the narrative and change the allocation of resources between citizens in the state of Israel. 
And I do think that, and I think also Yitzhak Gorobin thought this and Shimon Peres thought this, that until we get it right between our own Palestinian community in Israel, it will be very hard to ever make peace with our neighbors because what a lot of Jewish Israelis don't understand is that Palestinian citizens of Israel are deeply connected to their neighbors just by family, as friends, just as Jewish communities are connected to Jews around the world. So, for example, our chief executive, Tabitha Abogast, he is um, a Palestinian whose family is mostly in Gaza. So when something happens in Gaza, it affects him personally. Um, and, and I believe that getting that relationship right will be the bridge for the relationship with any other community. If our Palestinian citizens in Israel could stand up and say, this is a society where we feel respected and, and included, that would be a very good way for them to then help to create peace together with Jewish Israelis with their neighbors. I think until we get that right, it will be very, very difficult. You can just you can make any agreement that you want on paper, but until people agree to live together in in that way, it will never have traction in the longer term. And I think that was the problem during Oslo, one of the problems during Oslo, that there wasn't enough buy-in from the communities on both sides. And that's because some communities were excluded for sure. Just to do that just a little bit further, I just would be really interested in your reflection on the existence of the separation barrier or whatever, you know, anybody chooses to call it, um, which was which was um, built uh, in the as the and I know you had experience of the Second Intifada, very personal experience of the Second Intifada, which was extremely violent. And one of its consequences was the separation barrier. The fact that people can't they can't mix this presumably is is a significant barrier to the kind of person to person human uh, progress that that you're talking about it is a significant barrier and as you said it did have it it was built at a certain time i would want to say that most of it is not a wall it's actually it's wire fencing, but that's just a sort of a technicality. It did prevent an awful lot of violence at a, at a very difficult time. Um, I worked in a multinational, multi-ethnic um, team at that time at the New Israel Fund, and I, it would be fair to say that many of the Palestinian citizens of Israel on that team weren't opposed to there being some sort of prevention and separation of violence at that time. We have to be real. People were scared. Um, that, you know, there was, you know, a terror attack almost every day in 2001 in Jerusalem. Having said that, there's one thing when, when you're talking about security, but it's another thing when it's purposely encroaching on, on the livelihood and the dignity um, of people. And I don't think that it is possible to sustain that forever. I think, I think we see that. Um, so, of course, I would like to see relaxation of, you know, checkpoints or barriers. I'd also like for the people of Israel to be secure, whether they're Jews or not. Um, so it's complicated, but it's not helpful in terms of people knowing one another. It's definitely not helpful. Speaking of, of people knowing one another, uh, getting to know each other better Liz you I know that you um, took a personal initiative when you became the director of the uh, Council of Christians and Jews back here in the UK a number of years ago to bring Christians and Jews together 
um, in Israel. Um, can you just say, tell us tell us a bit about that, how it worked, and why you felt that was important? Um, I think it was important because there is a huge conflict by proxy outside of Israel, which isn't always in the interest of Palestinians and Israelis. And I also feel for educational purposes, it's important. So what you what you had in some parts of the UK and in some parts of the leadership of the Christian and Jewish communities are two communities that are very locked in their own narratives um, and don't often hear the narrative from another side. And life is complex and um, conflicts are even more complex. And it can't be that there can only be one narrative in this story. Anyone rational would not believe that. But you don't always have the opportunity to hear another narrative, to see the world through another person's eyes. And I think as soon as you do, which is what I experienced during Oslo, you understand that this is about human beings. And this is why the conflict needs to be solved, because it's impacting on the lives of human beings. So, for example, we would meet with um, religious leaders, Christian, Jewish, um, mainly um, in Israel and also in Palestine, um, hear from people that work um, on the ground in non-governmental organisations on both sides, but also hear from representatives of both governments. Um, because it is only from listening to somebody else's reality and trying to put your mind into their world that you will ever be able to have a vision for, for the future and for peace. Because we, you know, we make peace with people we're in conflict with, not with ourselves. Um, and I think it's important for communities outside of Israel and Palestine that care deeply about all the peoples in the land, um, that they are able to humanise these people. Because in the end, any solution will be between Palestinians and Israelis, and they will have to live that solution. It's not us. So I think it is very important even to listen to narratives that are quite difficult to understand why people believe what they believe and where there might even be in those most difficult communities some point of compromise. So in the last few years when I was at the Council of Christians and Jews, we went to meet with an organisation called Roots, um, where you have um, some Palestinians, the one that we met was from Bethlehem, meeting with um, settler groups talking about how they might find a way to live together. I'm not sure that they found the solution and, and you know, they're, they're not the only organisation doing this, but I think at least it's an encounter with the others, with the other, which, as you say, is, is so rare. Um, and there are different ideas of, of how a future could look. Um, some of them I agree with and think they would work and, and some I don't. But I think when you stop talking, that's that's the most worrying period and that was a lot of what happened during the second intifada and I think there is a lot more conversation both within Israel and Palestine and also internationally about the future now we we do have a moment of change I think with with the new Israeli government that's extremely diverse um, and potentially with uh, some point some change in the Palestinian Authority so I think it's about Christians and Jews around the world supporting not one team, supporting both teams, because this isn't the Hunger Games, this is human beings, and we need to be able to humanise and show support to all communities in that region. I also went to uh, Israel for the first time um, in, in 1987, just six weeks before the first intifada, 
fell in love with uh, Jerusalem and have been trying to figure out some of these issues ever since. Um, and one of the one of the the ways in which one of the things that I found helpful is actually reading some of the some of the writers who've reflected on the history of this conflict pre-1948, post-1948, Amos Oz being, being an example. I just wonder, do you have any writers who have really kind of, you think have got under the under the skin of this conflict, but in a way that humanizes and might help the rest of us to understand? Is there anybody you'd like to recommend? Definitely Amos Oz in the land of Israel was a very formative novel. Well, it's not a novel, it's, it's a reflection on, on the different communities and the tensions between those communities in Israel um, that I read in, I think before I even went to Israel when I was at university in 1986, I would, I would definitely suggest that. There are also other great writers like David Grossman and A.B. Yehoshua, who had a big influence on me. He particularly talks about the situation of Arab citizens of Israel. I think that the Israeli literary scene has has always been quite reflective on the conflict and, and issues between communities. So I think both in literature and in film, to some extent, you will find a lot of discussion around some of these issues. Um, there's a film festival in London every year called Seret, which means film, which is extremely diverse and doesn't shy away from the more thorny issues. So there's a lot out there. There's also a great Palestinian film festival every year in London, which I've attended. <laughs> Thanks, Liz. And listen, my last question, because I know you're a great fan of another festival, uh, which takes place around it sort of towards the end of December um, each year. It's called Limud. And because I suspect a lot of our listeners won't have heard of Limud, why don't we finish by you explaining what Limud is and why it's been something that you keep, why it's a festival that you keep going back to? So I think the closest thing that I can compare it to, and it still is different to it, but just for Christian listeners, it's sort of like a a massive green belt um, for the for the Jewish community around the world. So it's it's a pluralistic festival that focuses on everything to do with Jewish identity, from music to comedy to serious lectures, Judaism, Jewish history, interfaith, um, and it really. Um, does manage to to reflect all the colours of the Jewish community, both nationally and internationally. And it's very welcoming. Um, it's a place where everyone can find something that interests them. And you can also go out of your comfort zone and meet people that are incredibly different to you. So um, just to say that one of my memories from the last meal I attended was meeting the head of the Warsaw Jewish community um, who were represented there and hearing about some of the challenges for them in, in quite a small community um, where many of the community aren't even sure of their own roots and how they engage with the wider community in light of history in that region. So um, I think there's something for everyone. I've tried very hard to bring Christian leaders every year who are often forgotten by the Jewish community, surprisingly. And it's also really important that for them to hear from Christian leaders about why they care so much about the communities in the Holy Land. So that's also been an opportunity to do that. Um, so I'd highly recommend anyone that wants to have a fun few days. It's often in Birmingham. 
um, to um, to come and to come and experience it. <laughs> well, Liz, you, you kindly invited me one year and I, I absolutely loved it. It was fascinating. And of course, lots and lots of different views on just about everything, which is, yeah. is, is if, if, if you like, if you like hearing people tussling with the, with what's true and what's not true, then it's a it's a great place to witness that in action. Liz, thank you so much for for joining me and and um, for sharing so personally um, some of your insights uh, and your life story with the audience. We're incredibly grateful and wish you all the very best of luck in the future. Thank you.